This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmoud from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. Hi, this is Tom Brennan from Rockaway, New Jersey. Tom, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. You are not a data center guy by trade. You are a very interesting character. Let's start to get to know you a little bit. A man of mystery, Tom Brennan, the man of mystery. Oh, that's what we're going to explore. Tom, share at a very high level of who you are. Sure. Thanks for having me on your show to begin with. By definition, I think I do a lot of cybersecurity activities these days to help strengthen national critical infrastructure. I've spent a lot of time in regulatory spaces and organizations trying to help them be better. But that all started many, many years ago. You know, I've been involved in the early technology days of the 80s, running, you know, bulletin board services as a, as a young hacktivist trying to change the world in my own way. And that sort of graduated up through professional careers, organizations, and, and nonprofit organizations. So you've got 30 different experiences, jobs, whatever you classify it and quantify it these days on social media, such as LinkedIn. What do you currently do? What's your core job? Yeah, great question. So I guess the most current thing that I'm spending my time on these days is the Crest organization. I'm the executive director for Crest. I'm helping them grow the business of Crest globally. I'm responsible for the United States and I interface with various Department of Defense and critical infrastructure organizations in the U.S. for the purpose of cybersecurity. Day job is I'm a CIO of a 90-year-old law firm. So I have the opportunity to work with a bunch of really smart attorneys that work with litigation and, and legal aspects. And I interpret for them many of the technical components of, the, of their their roles as well. Whether that be a data breach, whether that be an expert witness, whether that giving them some opinions on mergers and acquisitions as it pertains to software, you know, many things in that space. And I've had a you know an individual consultancy doing, you know, side work and pro bono work for for many, many years. The side hustle. They call it a side hustle. I'm telling yeah. I'm being told that's what the kids call it. There you go. The, uh, so cybersecurity, you're obviously a security guy. You speak like a security guy. I feel like I'm being told top secret information, even though you're just telling me your story. You have a cybersecurity cadence. When you were a kid, did you want to go into cybersecurity? Was that a thing in the 80s? I'm not even sure it existed as a... As a term. Yeah, I think, I think it was more just a technologist. I, think, I mean, early days, uh, you know, I was one of those guys that had to start working at a local computer store that was selling the good old you know, Amiga and Commodore 64s and the old IBM clones. And I was there helping them install equipment and pulling wires and, and doing all the things that we did way back when. I don't think that's really changed much, meaning I still do some of that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, having early exposure to technology and software really became a thing. Got involved in the, as I mentioned before, the bulletin board space just as a way to communicate and collaborate with people that were all over the world. And I was really intrigued by knowledge and data that wasn't really acceptable to, you know, find at your local bookstore. So and we were you were you always in, interested in technology, even as a young kid? I, I would say, yeah. I think my first exposure was my my granddad bringing home an old Televideo 802H from a, a place that he worked that was, and he brought home two of them. And then I took them apart, played with them and made one work out of two. And that became sort of the platform that I, you know, started to work in was back in the CPM days and colossal cave and, you know, learning about, you know, how machines work. And, you know, that was, you know, sort of the beginning 
that was truly a passion, truly a hobby, truly fun. And then I was lucky enough to stay in that space and then continue with my career for a little while. And at that point, it really wasn't a career, right? I was a young kid trying to help out on different things and be a little mischievous at times. And then I had the opportunity to you know, join the military and I, and I went and did that after high school and spent some time in the military and the Marine Corps and, and learned about ethics and, and the, how things really work in the real world and trying to you know, service a mission bigger than yourself, which was you know, probably the right time for me well, to get out of the mischievous stuff. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your service. So Tom, you did serve in the United States Marines. Thank you again. What the heck is Jelly Video? I mean, that's even before my time. <laughs> <laughs> I, assume, I assume your grand your granddad delivered it home on horseback, which is the only way you can get around in Rockaway, New Jersey. Well, back uh, in the day, I was I was a Long Island boy, so I grew up in the five one six area code. If you're familiar with the twenty six hundred meg, Jersey, 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 my East. backyard, Jersey East, Jersey East. So you know the whole twenty six hundred crew and and growing up in in Middle Island and that area, you know, met a lot of great people, did a lot of fun stuff, and you know we were very focused back in the day on you know. Telephony and and phone systems and PBX hacking and and things of that space. So you know you had a, a good group of people that you know gelled together based on technical or at that point it was you know playing with technology that was new and exciting and really nobody knew much of what was going on and you know we were the the young kids that were you know trying to figure out how the world worked. So what is Televideo? Ah, so Televideo is just a, it's a company that created a computer, and the computer was based on CPM, programming language, which is you know, different or, or pre-DOS, if you want to go back in those days. So we're talking around, you know, for me, at least, it was, you know, 1982, 83, 84, like that was, you know, where these things sort of started. And what many of you may recognize is, you know, a timeline. What happened in 1983? Well, for many of us, you know, that was the first time we got exposed to a movie known as War Games when it came out. And... You know, as a bunch of kids, we went to the movie theater and sat there and says, wow, we're doing some of this stuff already. This is interesting. And it be, sort of became, you know, sort of that sort of sort of space where that technology back at the time was still brand new. You know, war dialing was not a crime and looking for activities and things to do and, and keep yourself busy was, you know, part of that era. And that really didn't change for a while. Because whether it was, you know, breaking copy protection or, or copying video games, and, you know, things of that nature was, again, what I consider very childish. But at the time, it was, you know, it's what we, you know, it's what we did for fun, being able to communicate and, you know, trade anarchy cookbook and other, other uh, text files of information was you know, interesting at the time. And it was sort of a sort of a cultural underground. And then, of course, we'd go to Manhattan every so often and we'd catch up at the local 2600 meeting at a bank in the city. And, you know, that's where we met a lot of the folks that some of them I stay in contact with today. So, you know, that's, you know, 30 years later, right? So you build those bonds as we all do with, with friends and technology communities and that builds trust. I'm going to tell you something and it's going to freak you out. It's 40 years later. Well, that's, 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 that's we are getting later. old. <laughs> You're getting old. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought me getting my big 64 was a big Oh, you know, big, my God. Big thing. Later. I don't know if anybody knows this, ladies and gentlemen. Tom Brennan is old. Old. He's an old, old man. Aged incredibly gracefully, though. I don't think anybody could, would, would imagine that, 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 yeah. that he might be slightly older than me, even, if that, if that exists. All right. Did you, did you continue doing, you know, the, the, the computer stuff, like, in the military? Was that, was that, did you do that for the Marines? I did not. No, I, I was actually encouraged by agencies to stop touching the keyboard and, and, <laughs> and go into the military. So I, I did that, and I had a short career in the Marine Corps. I was in as, a, as an infantryman, 0311 or grunt, you know, the guy that would carry a gun and hump 20 miles and go shoot things. 
ranks. I was involved in what's called the amphibious assault teams for the 2nd AV Battalion. I spent some time there. This was during the Gulf War One era, and I got out shortly thereafter in 1991 after breaking my back. So we came home after you know time in the military, and then you know I kind of was again a young gun looking. How did at, you break your? How did you break your back? So we were in a training exercise that was associated with Gulf War One invasion. So the amphibious assault landing uh, that never happened. If you look back and, and look at what General Schwarzkopf was saying, they were going to attack from the sea. But long story short, we were off White's Beach in California at Camp Pendleton, and we were doing a training exercise that was a recorded communication session that was used during the invasion. But during the training exercise, as, as many will know, you know, it's live fire exercise. It's, you know, conditions of normal. And we had an amphibious vehicle roll over. Unfortunately, I was in the back of that vehicle with 12 other men uh, and several of us got really banged up. Um, so I was medevaced off the beach and others were as well. But, you know, you can't fix a broken back you know, to any, any reasonable standard other than let it heal. And then determine, you know, are you going to stay in or are you going to get out? And as a young guy at the time, I thought the best option was, hey, I'm getting out. Looking back on that, I probably would have not chosen that path. But then again, maybe I wouldn't be where I am trying to continue to always, you know, help the greater good and focus on the bigger mission. So I don't think I've lost a lot of that conditioning and training that just gets applied differently. So I came home. Like I mentioned in late 91, started to work with a private investigator and I combined the physical security stuff that I had done with the military, then with some of the former technology stuff. And I ended up picking back up my technology focus, but this time I was writing software and building things to help identify, track and trace individuals. So I started to get involved in forensics and investigations. And that sort of led me to you know, using technology as a method to look at what the facts are, right? Look at the report, look at the data, you know, go where the data tells you to. And that was very helpful for, for that, you know, that era in time. Usually in these, in these, in these conversations, the more someone describes their journey, the more clear, you know, their aura becomes. In your case, you just get more mysterious. The more, I mean, now you're private investigating and looking around. It's, it's incredible. I will say one other aside, which is I am the only person on this call who, who hasn't broken their back. Oh, really? Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I wish it on nobody. There's nothing oh. worse than laying in a hospital bed. I mean, it hurts just hearing about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How's your back right now? Is your back, are, are, do you ever get 100% or is it still kind of? Yeah, I, I don't think you get back to 100%, you know, but, it, you know, it is what it is. I mean, technology is wonderful, but I'm a, you know, I'm a baby, right? I don't like surgeries. I'm not interested in putting rods in my back and that sort of a thing. So, right. uh, you know, sometimes you know, moving on to the next thing in your career or your life is is what it is. Back to the uh, keyboard, baby. Yeah. So, you know, went back to what I liked and realized that that was something I could make money at. I realized it was a career. I wonder, I, you know, I had a different sense of, you know, presence and, and ethics at that point. And then, you know, moving forward from there, it was working for different companies that then picked up some of those skills that I continued to build on it. Again, going back to the software, going back to building things and, and helping organizations, you know, realize at that time, the beginning of the dot-com boom, right? It was like, hey, can you put this online and take transactional orders? You know, sure, let's let's do that. And then one of the organizations I worked with, which was financial services, was, you know, the one that changed Wall Street forever. It was the first company that did online transactional trading. So we were involved in helping supporting the itch protocol with communication of stock trading. And Date Tech Online was bored and forever trained, you know, ch- changed the online stock market. So a lot of these great opportunities, you know, came because of relationships and people that, you know, knew technical ability and and then would invite you know conversation of hey we want to do this thing so you know many many startups that would look for assistance um 
you know, participating in many of them, but it always stayed true to the effort of building something that would be helpful. And then my security background always sort of crept in because, you know, we were building something and they had to defend it. And then we were hacked and then we'd have problems and we'd have to figure out why it happened. So continuing to be the offensive defensive conversation because at the end of the day, there is the ROI, right? Which is the risk of incarceration for the bad guy. And then the, you know, the return on investment of the business. So trying to make those two things balance out is risk is of incarceration. I'm going to tell every CFO I speak to now that ROI means risk of incarceration. Yeah, well, it's you know, I, I think if you know people that have bad ethics, again, the only difference between good guys and bad guys is ethics, in my opinion, not criminal. You know, the, the criminal activity is tied to I think technical skill, meaning you can have technical skill on both sides of the fence. You just need to look at where your ethics are. One thing I'm not hearing a lot of is formalized education, like for, in this thing, probably because there wasn't a ton of formalized education in in what what you were doing. And I'm not frankly sure what your feelings are on on formalized cybersecurity education today, which we can get into. But, you know, how did you you know, how, how was it that you went from, you know, one like new kind of technology, new way of approaching things to to another without, you know, some kind of formalized guidance? I assume there wasn't a how to be a cybersecurity hacktivist for dummies that you were reading that told you what to do. I, I would think that some of that, some of the stuff was, you know, self-taught where that we spent time collaborating and informally being from, you know, you know lower middle class background at the time that, you know, it wasn't really a thing that we were going to be you know, putting me through a high end sort of a, you know, a college and I didn't have the grades to support it. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I had a passion for what I was interested in. Uh, and when I needed to figure something out, I'd be the first, you know, reading these ridiculous textbooks of technical jargon that, you know, would be really focused on, you know, how to build things or or how software was going to be uh, built or uh, being able to deassemble uh, components and, and break it down to simple circuits, right? And be able to look at how I could manipulate that. So I was very comfortable and I'm still very comfortable with, you know, looking at a really hard problem, trying to break it down to simple nuggets and then attacking those simple nuggets to be meaningful. So any complex problem that, you know, yeah, that goes from data centers to anything else, you know, they're mostly building or puzzle pieces and you need to be able to be good at puzzles and you need to be able to like to be intrigued and you know, don't be afraid to ask for help and, and reaching out to, to colleagues and resources that can help you out on, on issues that can help you, you know, move forward. So we stand the same challenge these days. I mean, back in the day, there was a level of interest in people like yourself that were willing to go out and about and explore and learn and self-educate. Do you think that the current educational system requires a modification, a redo of teaching the basics to the kids? So if you fast forward and I'll go back to what you said before about the multiple you know, current things I'm involved in. I'm an advisor on a couple of different universities, ironically, New York University, St. John's University, County College of Morris. You know, there's a few organizations that you know I'll consult with or be on their advisory board to help make the next generation better. That's really about materials. I do see the underlying business opportunities where that, you know, colleges are competing for student dollars and they're trying to build programs that are, you know, focused on that. But from the technologist perspective, again, fast forwarding to today, I have a very interesting vantage point of knowing what industry is looking for and, you know, minimum ability for people to engage for a career basis. So I don't necessarily think that the schools need to 
change the mentality. But I do think there's a reward program that is difficult for most of the cyber folks. So, for example, the NSA School of Excellence has been very good in establishing what good looks like in the cyber realm and then in recruiting many universities across the country to subscribe to a basic syllabus. That's that's a really important point because, you know, again, fast forward to today, you know, sometimes I sit down with a candidate and we're talking about their first job out of college, and they don't have some of the prerequisite technical abilities that I would expect. And then you look at what they learned or the degree that they have, and you're sometimes surprised that you know they may have a lot of book smarts, but really no hands-on practical knowledge. So there's a balance there. And if you shift that to the right a little bit for what I do with Crest, Crest is an accreditation and certification organization. So when we accredit companies or accredited individuals, it really comes down to, can you demonstrate competency in what good looks like, can you demonstrate the appropriate the appropriate ability to do incident response or security services or penetration testing? Because it's more than just checking a bunch of boxes, right? Or it's more than pushing a bunch of buttons. So being able to demonstrate some of those qualities is really what you know comp- competency and accreditation is all about. I think I think your story I think your story is is the perfect example of that, right? I mean, it's, it, I've always felt no matter where you are whether, you know, in the full breadth of, you know, kind of critical infrastructure positions, which which runs a, a wide gamut that the most qualified candidates, the people that tend to excel at their jobs are the ones that learned, you know, on the job, that learned by doing that, that learned because that's where, you know, that's that that's where they just kind of were predisposed to move in direction, whether they're a facilities guy or sales guy or 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 someone in in marketing or someone in 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 security or, or systems administration. Yeah. It's it's the people that, you know, kind of took what their hobby was, took what their, you know, passion to a certain extent was, and just followed that as opposed to try to learn about how to in, in a book. And 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 I think I would agree from an industry perspective, part of that is the the right organizations and the right people, right? Surrounding yourself with assets, not liabilities. And I know I can speak from experience of working at like Pol Corporation and, and ADP and other organizations that have been very good to mentor, to give people the opportunity to start off, you know, small and work on projects and, you know, be part of the the bigger group and and, and sort of learn by, you know, a simulation and, and build, what is build the experience. Yeah, build your passion. Like, you know, hey, there's these things happening. You can plug into any of them. You know, what what excites you? What's interesting to you? And for, for me, I've always had a passion for convergence, right? The physical side of security, the electronic side of security. These things come together and there's tons of examples of, you know, the, the, the modern threat, right? The modern threat goes in with physical humans, puts them inside your business. You know, they knock down cameras, they attack software. There's all different blended uh, uh, goals to, you know, what the, the attacker is, especially in national critical infrastructure. You know, we're not necessarily always uh, focused on, hey, look, this website has cross-site scripting, right? That may be a component of a bigger problem, but, you know, depends on what the treasure is. So the red teaming type folks that are looking at the, the large threat what scenario, what tabletop exercise, you know, scares you most or keeps you up at night? Like those are the type of scenarios that that I spend a lot more of my time on. In your current capacity, when you're looking for folks that are entering into the space, what's more important to you? Is it an educational background? Is it certifications? Is it experience? Well, what are you what are you looking at for the the next next generation or the the leaders of the future? Sure. So I, I think it 
truly depends on the on the role, and it's a, it's a very wide question. But I can give you an experience from in context as the CIO for a law firm. I've recently hired some new people here on the team, and I had two different types of folks, which might answer your question. The first person that uh, I had come in was an intern from Seton Hall. He had a really good background in sort of going through his courses and where he was trying to go, and he was uh, presented himself very well out of the other candidates that we spoke to, and gave him the opportunity as an intern to to learn. And again mentor and be part of something. That person recently just converted to be a, a full-time person and is, is a great guy. The other resource that applied was a, a 25 Bravo U.S. Army Reservist who just you know went through a job transition from something that was very blue collar, went into the Army, became a reservist. He got formally trained with boot camp and schools battalion. And now he's, you know, quote unquote, on the job market and he's going to serve the country, you know, a weekend a year, two weeks you know, out of the year, et cetera. So for me, that was a perfect candidate because he had the discipline, understood sort of how the process, you know, works. Um, I, I like to work in a way that, you know, we can be very clear, but what I call weapons free with like, hey, this is the direction that we're going in. It's never going to be perfect because as soon as we start down a direction, things are going to change and you have to be able to be flexible and you have to be able to be operationally appropriate at times. So for me, both of these candidates are very different, but, you know, they, they fit different roles. And then truly the candidate has to understand how they plug into the environment and be, and be fulfilled and, and, and be comfortable and be able to to count on the company to to really want to be with them long term because stability is a very important thing of every organization, right? You got to have the mental health to make sure that your, your team members can pull in the right direction. Indeed. I think you just answered the question that I've been kind of struggling with lately. It's the human element is as important as the technology itself. It's the character, it's the interest, it's the education and the willingness to learn and adapt. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, it goes back to the the people process technology thing. And to your point before of you know, formal education, I mean, I've gone through, you know, a bunch of college credits and, you know, basically dropped it out to help support my first kid. And, you know, it, it is what it is when it comes to, to college. But, you know, being able to sit down and, and, and you know, earn to be able to provide for a family, you know, that takes work uh, and you put the work in and you do the, do the things that happen to go with that. You build that relationship. If you're involved in community, as Phil knows me from the OWASP community from the New York City region, you know, I've done that as a passion where that bringing people together and, and sort of you know, learning from each other in, in a very open way. The connections I've made personally are amazing. You know, I have a lot of great, you know, people around the world. Just, that you, being able- just, to, just to be clear though, I'm your favorite. You are my favorite though, Phil. Absolutely. I just want to make sure we're all clear on that. For, all, for, 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 for our listener, I want to make sure everyone is aware that I am Tom Brennan's favorite. You know, if you look, cybersecurity in general is because it is a reaction to these outside threats. You know, there's something from a perspective standpoint that, you know, should embrace a diversity of experience because people bring you know, the, the diversity of their experiences into whatever role. And with, with something like cybersecurity, you're always kind of anticipating what the bad guy is doing. So how does, how does that play into it? Like, do, do, is, is diversity something of, of experience something that you look for in an accommodating role as opposed to maybe someone that's been, you know, in the same position, you know, with, with you know, experiencing the same environment that, you know, that, that other, other employees would, 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 would also have experienced? Is that a thing? I, I, th- I think I think so. I think the the word diversity to me a little allergic to the word. Let me tell you why. Because I noticed I, you broke out in hives as soon as I said it. I was gonna one. I was wondering why. Well, the the way that I always 
joke the way that i joke around it is that you, know, you you don't know that you're a dog behind the keyboard right so the idea of being able to perform being able to do the work is really important be able to communicate it being able to to demonstrate competency so it's not a race thing it's not a religion thing it's not it's, it's not anything that's tied to it. it's in it's in the capability side and then the other component of it is is in the role you know an organization that is building a team again coming from the the military side i know for a fact that there's nothing better than having guys watch your back and be able to collaborate and all go forward, that takes different skills. You might have a team of people that all have similar skills, but they have to be able to collaborate. So in many cases, you know, I'm, I'm a follower or I'm part of the project, or although, I'm a, although I could be a leader at times, it depends on what my role needs to be to be effective on that particular project. And so, you know, I like to lead by example. I, I, I usually sit in a very, in the team, you know, on the, on the group conversation. And I also admire people like you know, even like Michael Bloomberg, who, you know, he sits in a room with his team and he's part of the part of the environment. I think that's a very good way to lead by example is to be you know, in, in the mucks with people. I'll pick up a broom or I'll, or, or I'll solve the problem. It just depends on what what's needed today. So in the current state of affairs, what are some of the biggest hurdles and what are some of your key strategic focuses? Sure, sure. So that goes into, I think, a little bit of, of the recent work. The recent work for Focus has been around contributing to efforts. So as an example, we mentioned the Open Web Application Security Project. Very proud of that organization. You know, we helped build that up to 35,000 people in 118 countries around the world. You know, started very small, got very big. So that taught me a lot. Taught me a lot about nonprofits, taught me a lot about international law, taught me a lot about software. Again, that's what its core mission is. But then that sort of was the jumping point, right? Like helping out with SRC, with the Department of Homeland Security, assisting with the Center for Internet Security with some of their guidance and standards. Being able to, t to tag into these projects and be able to actually be meaningful was always very rewarding for me personally. I was tapped by uh, Howard Schmidt. Howard Schmidt was the former cyber czar appointed by George W. Bush and, under, and also under the Clinton, Clinton administration. So I worked for Howard when he was with SafeCode. Uh, and with SafeCode, I was the technical director. So I, again, I was working with large ISVs, the Microsofts of the world and others to kind of to demonstrate what good looks like in software security tied to threat modeling and fundamental practices, third-party components. Like these are very important topics that if you can have multiple organizations sort of agree on standards and best practices, then they can quote unquote self-regulate, right? Because they have to determine what good looks like. So there's lots of efforts that I've been involved in in that particular space. And I'm still doing it today, right? I'm still working with the Crest organization currently. In February, we launched the, the nonprofit cyber organization where we brought together 22 nonprofits that have different missions and purposes, but they're all focused in cybersecurity in many different ways. And that's, you know, that's kind of a highlight, I think, of, of some of the things we've worked on because you can operate in silo where you can try to you know figure out what the good is between the different groups and you know have reasonable commercial standards that are usable and again that brings back to where my current role is with the law firm because i always look and see uh, litigations and data breaches and things of that nature and the first question attorney is going to ask of course is well what commercially reasonable standard did you measure your pro your program to before you had the breach you know what are you doing with the data center that you know are they are they secure have they gone through SAS 70 reviews or, you know they, the the checks and balances that your organization sometimes need to meet to demonstrate good hygiene is part of that conversation I think the look the 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 thing that I've always appreciated about OWASP and and to a certain extent Crest and and your embracing of 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 those types of organizations is it makes sense from both standpoints. It's not like self-aggrandizing with with cybersecurity. You you 
in order to be successful with it, it seems to me that you need to have this community focus where everyone can speak to their experiences because you're constantly chasing, you're constantly evolving. It's incredibly dynamic as, you know, a kind of, you know, vertical within the technology space because it's, you know, to a certain extent, there's some proactive elements to it, but it's it's reactive to, you know, threats and, and changing threats, right? And what better way to, you can't just kind of be in your little bubble and 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 think that you have an effective, you know, cybersecurity cyber kind of methodology, unless you're out there in the community understanding what other folks are experiencing so that you can harden your, your own environment, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, you know, the nonprofit cyber coalition, you know, it's focused really on two priorities, right? You know, it's building awareness through the work of the other associations so we can centralize that. And then, you know, calling out, you know, how these can 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 be pointed to or referenced. And, and I think that in itself is, you know, helping the overall efforts and then focusing on where the gaps are. You know, we're seeing lots of discussions on Capitol Hill. We're seeing lots of discussions in Europe and Singapore, other parts of the world about, you know, regulation and, and trying to make things better. But for the purpose of what? For the purpose of privacy and security of its citizens, protecting personal rights, the idea of you know PII data you know, leaking to the street. There's some good intent, but I don't think personally that legislation can fix a technical problem. It really takes technologists to come together and come up with reasonable standards, and then organizations to look to that. You know, okay, that that's what good looks like. Think of it like a we build a house, right? We build a house. We need plans. We need to have an architectural diagram. Probably need to have a certified engineer stamp the document, right? We need the threat model and talk about, you know, are we going to be in a hurricane season? What's going to happen with high winds? And this would be, you know, very much take the physical aspects of what we know and love and apply it to, to tech. And I think some of that bleed over is very difficult where that, you know, sometimes people don't understand the tech side. And to your point, Phil, you could be, I think, a generalist, which is useful, but you also need to be able to go deep. So, you know, I think that there's got to be that understanding as well when someone says, well, how do we do JNDI with, you know, Java and how do we go ahead and stop deserialization of web application problems? Like you got to have the the ability to speak at a five-year-old level. That's sort of my joke, be able to have it very comprehensive and simple to understand. And then with the right people in the room, well, hey, yeah, let's go deep on that problem. Let's, let's figure it out. Or if it's not your space, punch out. Hey, it's, that's not me, but I know the guy. Let me bring in the right guy that can help us out. I mean, I think, I think what we found as part of our mission, you know, we call, we call our mission, part of it is, is demystifying technology in general, right? So, so the notion that, you know, simplifying it uh, makes all the sense in the world, particularly as it relates to, uh, to, to, to cybersecurity. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Nomad Futurist Foundation is also, you know, an associate member of, of the, the non-private cyber coalition as well. And, and, and we're very proud of that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a good thing because you know I I would hope that uh, for those that listen to podcasts, I know that's my you know my usual drive to work and that sort of a thing. But you know, there's good nuggets. That you you listen to me on your drive to work. I did. Yeah, I, 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 I thought it was me, Phil. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the problem is it sneaks in. I mean, you can't just skip over stuff. I listen to the Barry White of the podcast. That's not going to work. This is true. Well, you had, you had a gentleman on the phone on the podcast that was with Cloudflare that I thought his interview was phenomenal. It was Michael a really King. good conversation. And Michael did a great job. And then that's kind of where I reached you out. Michael did a great job. Look, I, these things are nothing without the interviewer. Okay. <laughs> Michael King is nobody without me. This is true. Hear that, Michael? What would you say? I'm going to just shift gears here for a second. What would you say while we're on the topic of demystifying the idea of cyber security in general. I mean, you have been in this space since the space has existed. You used to be the 
person that you are now protecting people from, which is a very catch me if you can kind of kind of element to your personality that I think the world fully grasps. But what is the biggest misconception? What is what is the thing that people just don't get about how at risk they are, like typical typical things that they do that they shouldn't do other than and I can't believe I'm saying my password. It's one, two, three, four or password, depending on whether you're allowed to use numbers. Besides bad passwords, is there is there some misconception? Is there some common thing that people could do differently that would make them safer? I think I think security is treated for convenience. I think that people sometimes don't realize the the basics that you know we would hold them to. You know, if you lose your and you look for you know where's all those phone numbers, credit cards, and things that were there that you don't have a copy of, that's an example of disaster recovery, right? Do you do, you do the basics if you don't have proper password hygiene and you know your passwords are compromised because it's password one two three well that's okay if it's an attacker attacking you individually and they password spray you and they happen to get lucky fantastic but when the organization that holds thirty two thousand passwords of all its member companies when they don't salt the component properly and don't protect the data and then that's breached I don't care how big your password is, right? You've been compromised because the organization you trusted failed to protect you as the consumer. But Tom, uh, there's an at sign and a number sign. Nobody, nobody can get. Statistically speaking, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, so it comes down to that mutual respect. It's just like the guy who puts an an, an alarm in his house and feels warm and fuzzy about it because he pays a, a monitoring fee, but he's never had somebody who installs alarms try to break into his house. It's the guy yeah. installing the alarm that's breaking into your house. I remember there's that Steinfeld episode where Jerry Jerry had like the, the best lock in on, on the planet, an impenetrable lock installed on his door. And then Kramer was house sitting for him and, you know, he got robbed and Kramer actually had accidentally left the door open. It's like there's only one design flaw in the lock that the door must be closed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tom, I mean, we, 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 we were the guys that used to sit under the stairwell looking for the stapler. Now we're in the corner office, and that's been a big transition. The last two years have been amazing. I've not been any corner office, but why? Let's go. With was that an office space reference? That was totally the office space reference. Office space reference, and then I guess, and it kind of transitioned to geek chic. Like we are now not totally shoved into our lockers. we're not getting shoved into lockers by what I would assume, just having seen Tom Brennan's children, the type of people that would shove me into lockers. That's that's a funny story, I think, in itself. So for those who follow me on Twitter, you'll see me promoting my son's Division One football goals. But you know, he's a six foot nine, two hundred sixty five offensive tackle. He's a monster. Can Can you repeat that height again? Six foot nine. He's a pretty big. Six foot nine. Yeah. But, you know, he likes to flip tires. He likes to work out. He likes to crush people on the football field, which is fun. But, you know, doesn't doesn't know much about technology. Let's just leave it at that. So it's very different than dad. So I support him in a big way. Okay, but, but, again, but you totally agree with the with with the thesis that he would be the one shoving me into a locker in high school. No, no, because he's been taught ethics. Oh, oh that's right. That's dad's <laughs> been there to coach him along the way. So, so, his, so his his teammates would be the ones shoving me into he'd be the one protecting me. Um, well, someone's got to look good. But, but, 
but, it comes, but, but, but but that's part of what we talk about, right? It comes down to the discussion about, you know, his job, uh, quite frankly, our job is to is to watch out for the folks that can't watch out for themselves. And in cyber, that's pretty much everybody, right? So you get the, you know, we think the Calvary is coming. I'll use Josh Corman's reference, but it's not. We are the old guys in the room. Truly, we are. And if we can't make the world a better place, um, the next generation is in trouble. So that's where we should be motivated to spend a little bit of our time, you know, thinking about, you know, what's next and, and how we can make it a better place. That's what's going to let me sleep at night, knowing that it doesn't matter how tall you are, 6'9", 290, if, if somebody steals your password because of the, you know, Equifax hack, you know, that's it. It's all, it's all over, man. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Big Brennan? So, 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 so. A couple of questions. <laughs> let's let's get back on track. Now we're in the corner office. We've got presence at the board table. How receptive are organizations talking and taking security and technology seriously? My experience, it's definitely a, a, a constant conversation about risk tolerance. And it's also a constant conversation about acceptable risk. And, you know, we all see the sign on the road that says 55 miles an hour, and most of us drive 55 miles an hour, right? But the point of it is, is that, you know, we look at what's acceptable and the business can go ahead and accept the risk, right? Insure against it, outsource it. There's, there's mechanisms to deal with the problem. And I think a lot of the component is the difference between the technologist way of thinking and then the other side of the room, which is usually based on what? Revenue and focus and trying to determine what's acceptable. I remember, you know, many, many years ago working for a financial services firm. And the question was, what's the fine if we don't fix the problem? Oh, about $250,000. Yeah, we'll pay the fine. Don't worry about it. About it really can i get that in writing because again you want to you know look at what is there so we go back to policy we go back to our procedure we go back to the people we go back to the people doing the work that have the appropriate skills so very simple block and tackle stuff and i think businesses are you know aligning to that but there's always going to be you know the the young companies that are trying to get it done on a shoestring and you know we wish them well and we hope that things are super for them but when you have customer data that you're touching that eventually affects them individually it could be you know PII it could be you know financial it could be other material like you know office of personnel and management right they were they were breached and everyone that had clearances data's on the street so it really comes down to you know whose data are you protecting and if you guys have systems that are tied to critical infrastructure and some of those systems quite frankly can cause human life they should be the most important controls and we have problems with our water systems we have problems with our technology we've seen various things in the news and of course now there's a war going on so everyone has that that hesitation of is cyber really that interesting? And when you do do an offensive operation and you are going to take out a, a forward system before you, let's say, you know, infiltrate with humans into a, a combat area, that's part of it now, right? We now have that domain. We have the cyber domain as an actual space that's recognized as its own thing because everything is interconnected and everybody's connected to the internet. Everybody lives in a bad neighborhood, right? There's no more good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods. You're connected. You're in a bad neighborhood and it serves both sides. It serves the ethics side of the good guys and the ethics of the bad guys because the internet is a wonderful place. It allows everybody to operate. So it's in everyone's best interest to make it operational at times or disruptive. It just depends. What are some of the key technologies or areas that you're looking at for, for your next big thing? So what we spend a lot of time on on the technology piece, I think, is really where the organizations are going with authentication and access. I still think that with you know a cloud-based environment, you know, multiple organizations these days, we're no longer 
well, not, not that we're not, but most organizations that are coming online, you know, SaaS platforms have are sort of dominating, right? The ability to have a monthly cost is very attractive to the business. Being able to do authentication across multiple systems and management is a very interesting space. There's always going to be, you know, API connectivity between system A and system B. There's there's just a lot there that comes down to having technologies operate in a way that's auditable. You can control it and is able to have, you know, a log. It's always like you you have the knock on the door from the auditor. He says, do you have a policy? Oh, yeah, here's my one pager. Have a procedure? Yeah, here's my one pager. Do you have 12 months of audit to demonstrate you've been doing this for 12 months or did you just pull it out of the hat last week? Like demonstrate to me you're doing this process for longer than three days. And that would quantify that, yeah, okay, looks like they've been doing something in this particular control. And then again, if you measure yourself to, let's say, the CMMC, you know, there's a lot of different controls. Because why? Because the Department of Defense has finally said, in my opinion, that's a great thing, that, hey, you just can't attest to a government contract and say, oh, yeah, sure, we do 800-171, we do 800-53, we do all this stuff, and they sign our life away, but they've never done it. So there's no audit, there's no validation. And when you're risking you know, life of the warfighter on the street, to me, that's a problem. So I'm, I'm very happy to participate in those activities to try to help determine what good looks like, as well as what the standards are to be able to contest or, or do assessments against those devices, right? Whether it be penetration testing standards or things in that space, because to me, that's, you know, it's important. There's a whole industry, niche industry within that particular sector as to, you know, who's fit for purpose for these particular operations. Well, I, I want to touch on something that's, that, that's, that's specific that I think I reached out to you about, you know, months and months ago. But, you know, it used to be that, you know, people were arguing about whether to, if they're going to keep your money on the mattress, keep your money in the bank, whatever. And now you've had a huge surge over the last couple of years in, in cryptocurrency, right? The, so you have a, a lot of these people, you know, leveraging the decentralized blockchain. I'm not going to pretend like I can explain it in 30 seconds, but everybody knows what, you know, to some, some extent that cryptocurrency is, is, is a fancy buzzword where people have put, lost, gained significant amounts of wealth. But it puts cybersecurity at the forefront because you have all these stories about even people that have, you know, multiple layers of authentication getting, you know, a cell phone hacked and an email address hacked. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone makes off with hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in cryptocurrency and there's no way to trace it because it's designed to have no way to trace it. So short of that being something that's interesting to me in terms of like a very real way that cybersecurity isn't just, you know, something that's that that's a nuisance, but something that can legitimately in the drop of a hat in the middle of the night, because we're all connected and there is no market open, market closed, bank open, bank closed, you know, kind of methodology to it. How do you tackle something like that? Is it is it is there a discussion on that in the cybersecurity community? Am I just making it up? No, no. I mean, it's it's definitely another industry vertical. So the organizations are in the blockchain space, and I you know work with a bunch of them. The same thing holds true, right? It holds true based on process. Holds true based on user education. You are your own bank, and if you're going to be your own bank, and you're going to go ahead and have controls in place to be your own bank, you have to determine what good looks like. And you may go ahead and determine that because you bought a thousand dollars in crypto in 2008, and now you're worth you know millions and millions of dollars, that you need to have a guy next to you with a guard and a gun then maybe that's appropriate. But my point is, we look at the controls around how you deal with your wallet and how you go ahead and allow that to operate. If you're going to be moving to a, a model where that you're 
decentralizing your operation and you're going to go ahead and move money within different wallets, it's it's also mistaken to think that it's not traceable. Blockchain by very default allows for the verification of records. So when I have a, a compromise, so we have situations where that there's been a, a theft, we're looking for where the wallet was you know moved to, where it was transferred to, and then tracing that ability. I'll, I'll throw a kudos out to our friends in New York City called Chainalysis, Chainalysis that do a really good job in, 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 in crypto sort of tracking and being able to demask you know, where that's happened. And then you look at the bad guys and you go, okay, they move money and then they put it through a blender and they you know, move it very quickly, which makes it more difficult and then try to cash out. But at the end of the day, whether it be you know, Silk Road or, or any other organization that's involved in, in, in the, the, the ethical components of, of technology, it comes down to assurances and controls. How many of us, and many of us have, you know, dabbled in crypto years ago as a as a hobby, as a thing to do, and then lost control of the wallet. Now they can't get back into their hardware token that they built for with Trevor or whatever else they were using at the time. It's common. And then is that device, that hardware device, able to be, you know, JTAGged and jumped and be able to get into the the the, the device and recover access? Again, all depends on time time and money. If it's a $100 million wallet, I'm going to put some time into that, right? I'm going to try to help you with that problem. But if it's just a couple bucks, then you know, maybe we right. just, you know, well, I, think the, uh, I, I think that I don't think I've ever heard it more plainly said if, if their goal is to demystify that if if you are talking to a lay person and you're trying to articulate, you know, the 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 idea of decentralized cryptocurrency and, and its relation to cybersecurity, saying that you are your own bank, I think puts things in 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 stark terms, in terms yeah. of what are you willing to invest in your own security compared to what a J.P. Morgan or a Citibank is is investing in some cases unsuccessfully True. in 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 their own security protocol. And re- remember this because I think this is an interesting topic, right? The the concept of a of, a, of an unethical bad guy or an unethical hacker versus an ethical hacker. There are differences there. But if I'm going to target individuals based on net worth or because they, they they squawk on social media about how much of a Bitcoin person they are or whatever it's going to be, and I'm going to find their controls lacking and then be able to you know, fish them and hook their browser and get to their machine and get to their local wallet and steal their component, like it, it depends on what you're doing. Right. If you're going to be that guy who thinks you're in, you're not able to be penetrated, including myself. Right. I'm always have to look over your shoulder to make sure that your systems are as good as you think they are, because there's always somebody better out there. But the point is, if you're your own bank, you have those you have to have those controls. And that's why regulations come in place, right? Why do regulations ask banks for controls, you know, in the traditional sense? Because the banks are trying to verify, or the regulators are trying to verify that there's components in place for, let's say, DFS 500 reporting. So we've just sort of jumped the chasm from the new technology to the traditional side. And regulation is interesting. And I always say that, you know, security is not compliance. Compliance is compliance. Security helps but if you're secure, you're more likely going to be compliant because all of the standards that are out there, the best practices, they're very generalized, right? Back in the PCI days, as an example, you can do split tunneling on, on a device that had VPN and that was considered okay. But in the security world, I would shake my head and say, absolutely not okay. So it just depends on you know what people think is reasonable to, to align to. So again, compliance is not security. <laughs> and well, it's not we'll security, compliance is compliance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you 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 can you can be compliant and not secure. Indeed, Tom. What what would be a, 
a couple of core messages that you would like to share with a young listener? I, I would think, as I've said to the the students at NYU and and, and the other the other schools I help out with, it's really about passion, right? Like it's really about take the thing that you like to do that you think you like to do, and really put some time into it. If you're if you're if you're the, the kid who likes robotics, well, great, go all in. Right. If you kind of like developing code to go ahead and automate a task, great. Spend some time there. I think everybody these days should, you know, be able to automate process. Right. And I think the gatekeeping in the industry is is a little bit of a problem because again, it comes time for people to be able to step up and be able to assist. Uh, so the idea is is bring in a intern, mentor them well. Hopefully they stay on your team because they like what you do and they, you know, it's a mutual benefit and that helps an organization, you know, sort of grow. If you're, if you're, if you're in, in high school, I just worked on a bug bounty program with a, a local uh, nine through 12 school here in New Jersey. And I taught the kids how to, you know, hack from, and that was a whole different conversation to them because now there was an incentive. And when the kids started bringing down $500 and $1,000 bug bounties, they, it, meant, it meant something. And they were going, well, is it this easy? And the answer is, it's not that easy, but I'm going to teach you a methodology in a process that's somewhat repeatable and every project can be a little bit different but if you kind of stay on stay on scope you guys are going to see some rewards so when the kids start popping money and getting checks in the mail they go, wow this is really a cool thing and and for some kids including myself that's what it drives me more and more and more because i want to do more and i want to earn more money potentially right so there's a, a, a an item there of motivation ai is a hot topic these days but again we have some some issues that are you know, there too with ethics and, and how that's going to help versus hurt is going to be an important piece. But, you know, go deep, enjoy what you do and, and try to go wide at the same time, meaning understand what else is going out there. And last thing I'll throw in there is is, is definitely attend local events. If you're if you like to if you like the tech space, go to twenty six hundred dot com, take a look at the local meetups, look at the meetup websites, find your local tech hangouts, find the local OWASH chapter, consider going out to DEF CON for you know, the annual Mecca out in Vegas, or this year, go to St. John's and go to the Hackers on Planet Earth conference, which will be at St. John's in July. Meet some great people, hear some great talks. And if you can't get there, take a look at their website. There's probably some live streaming going on as well. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us home. This has been absolutely phenomenal. You are incredible. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Tom. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.